Well, uh, when they set up the European Economic Community uh, and uh, the uh, economic, uh, the Euratom, they wanted to give it structures which uh, related to uh, national structures. So they gave it a, a commission to act as a kind of government, a council of ministers to supervise that government, a European parliamentary assembly, which they called the European Parliament, and uh, they also gave it an economic and social committee because in the national setups of five of the original member states, five of the six original member states, they have such uh, economic and social councils in the national setup. They have them in France, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Luxembourg and Italy. And they thought they would like to involve the economic and social groupings that is, uh, employers, trade unions, farmers, uh, carriers, uh, what they call carriers means transport, artisans, of course there were many more artisans then there, uh, than there are now, trade, commerce, the professions, the consumers, all these groups, they should, they felt, the, the, the people who were constructing Europe and preparing its institutions, they felt that these groups, these economic and social groups, should have a say in the community decision-making process. And uh, on the pa national pattern, they set up, or they wanted to set up, an economic and social council. Now, this ran into an opposition, uh, mainly on the part of the German negotiators, uh, who didn't have such a thing on their national setup and uh, weren't keen on it. And they wanted to downgrade it which they did in the end, by calling it a committee. But of course it is uh, one of our biggest handicaps in explaining the functions of this institution to the world. Uh, we have this uh, misleading title hung around our necks, Economic and Social Committee. A committee in people's minds is a small institution, whereas uh, in fact uh, we are a, a large assembly uh, 144 members until December last year and now 156 members you can't call that a committee and uh, the title itself economic and social really refers to its composition the composition of its representatives they represent economic and social groupings in the member states it's not uh, that they merely deal with economic and social subjects they deal with nearly all European legislation, apart from the budget, in fact. So uh, when you come with the title, you get uh, uh, the impression that it's a small group of people dealing purely with economic and social matters. This, unfortunately, is a mistaken concept. What would you call it instead? I think uh, it's a, it is, I would call it a constituent assembly of representative of the economic and social uh, interest groups in the member states. In effect what it is is a lobby for people engaged in industry and agriculture and fishing that the people in these industries from the various member states can come here and make their case to this committee. Well uh, it is in fact more than that. Uh, all these lobbies do exist and are very active in Brussels but uh, what it really is is that the in the Economic and Social Committee all these lobbies have to confront each other. Their competitors 
whether they be national or competitors, whether they be from the same trade or a different trade, uh, whether they come from the employer side, the trade union side, the producer side, the consumer side, and in the presence of representatives of the council and of ministers and, and representatives of the commission, they have to argue their case, convince with their case, gain sufficient votes, and show what their arguments are. It is, in fact, a, a, a forum for the lobbies. Tom Barry Brunthal, press officer of the Economic and Social Committee of the European Communities in Brussels. For the first time ever, the president of that committee is an Irishman. Thomas Rosengrave, the national director of Winchin Athera, was elected president last October. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, today is a very special day for the Economic and Social Committee. And I would like to thank the many eminent guests, presidents, ministers, and ambassadors who have accepted our invitation to this session and who by their presence have underlined the significance of this important occasion. Of course, it is for me a great honor to welcome the new members from Greece to our assembly. And for two reasons, I find it particularly significant that they should be installed today. Firstly, this is their national day, the Feast of the Annunciation, the day of good tidings. For surely it is good tidings of hope and promise that the world and Europe needs today to conquer the prevailing despondency and the lack of faith. I think quite clearly that to every delegation from all of the countries of Europe which are associated with the Economic and Social Committee, he has proved himself in their acknowledged statements to be one of the most far-seeing, most honest and most sincere presidents that they have known. It's a privilege to serve under his chairmanship. The opinion of an Irish trade union member, Jack Corliss. How does the president see the work of his committee? All the... Uh proposals for directives and regulations that come from uh, the Commission uh, are referred here to the Commission. This has to be done under the mandate which we have from the Treaty of Rome. So we have here to organize our work through the medium of study groups and sections and examine these proposals so you can understand there is a, a very good cross uh, examination from the various interest groups such as trade unions and employers organizations and farmers and so on on the various proposals which are made. In addition to that, uh, the very composition of the study groups and the sections ensures that the various member states must also have their particular input into uh, in, in, into the, the uh, examination and analysis of the Commission's proposals. When that work is done uh, and the uh, draft opinion for the technical term uh, comes to the plenary session, then it's voted on and then the document finally goes to the Commission. Now the Commission may accept or reject uh, the opinions of the committee, as they may do likewise in regard to the Parliament. These are the two main consultative bodies uh, under the Treaty of Rome. 
So we are a consultative body, uh, and I think, as you say, representing the uh, the mass of uh, people from the grassroots, as it were, uh, in Europe, uh, these documents get a, a very thorough examination here. The danger of a committee with that executive function is that it can become simply a talking shop. Has that happened in the case of the Economic and Social Committee? Maurice Sinken, a member of the British delegation. That's always very difficult to answer. I think the ESC has two functions. First of all, on all the details of directives and regulations, the ESC brings to bear a body of knowledge that on the whole the governments don't have. This is specialised expertise. That's right. Between our various members, we actually have been at the cutting end of most things. And I think that quite often on these specialised points, the Commission and the Council does listen to us. I think our other job is that we are relatively good at reaching compromises, perhaps because we all belong to organisations that spend their lives in reaching compromises, whereas obviously a parliament is a much more confrontational organisation. And I think the Council of Ministers has a look at our compromises because they tell them something about where they could go and not get themselves into too much political trouble. There is a good deal of internal lobbying, I would imagine, and wheeling and dealing within the committee here. Um, it depends how you define those terms, but if you mean that over a period of time we do a great deal of talking to each other, and therefore we do a fair amount of modifying each other's opinions. Yes, that's true. I now understand a great deal better than I did what it is that a Frenchman wants from the common agricultural policy or what the worries are of Italian agriculture. And once one understands, one modifies the solutions and the answers that one puts forward to meet those problems. This committee does work. Gordon Pearson of the FUE. It was set up by the Treaty of Rome, uh, not which not many people know about, uh, but it is formed of the social partners, the employers, the workers, and the other interests, which are farmers and environmentalists and so on. These hopefully represent all the major interests in the country. Yes, absolutely, as far as Ireland is concerned. And uh, the draft directives have to be referred to the committee before, in fact, the Council of Ministers can make their final decision upon them. So as a result, we have working parties or study groups to consider the various uh, directives that are coming before us. And at that stage, we have the members of the Commission who have drawn up these draft directives. So in effect, the more effective we are, probably the less you hear about us. Because at that stage, we are able to persuade the Commission that their proposals are impractical or wrong or, in fact, what they have written is not, in fact, what they intend to achieve. So these are all altered at that early stage. And so that these, if, if the working parties are really effective, uh, the Commission's final document is very often quite radically changed. And you can always put your own country's point of view and difficulties at that stage.
So I think, by and large, uh, the, this committee uh, works relatively well. Well, as the treaty says, the Economic and Social Committee is uh, composed by people who are representing certain categories of economic and social life. Signor Graziosi, a director of the Secretariat of the Committee. Uh, the list mentioned in the treaty is not an exhaustive list, and progressively you see that uh, uh, in as far as in the member countries, certain sectors of activity uh, get their credibility, they get their structures, you do find uh, these organizations represented in the committee through membership. Uh, well, it's quite clear that the people in the committee may be considered as being a kind of privileged public opinion because uh, being leaders of national professional organizations, it's quite clear that uh, there is an interchange going on when they come to Brussels to bring in naturally the ideas living in their country and their organizations. But on the other hand, when they do get in touch in Brussels uh, with other people of same organizations of other countries, they do get acquainted, say, with the experience and the positions of these people and are also able to come back home and bring in so input from Brussels into the national capitals. I, I think it's better if we concentrated here on preparing reports which would con contain various viewpoints rather than try to come up with compromise opinions which uh, give way on each matters of principle and really because we want to seek agreement in respect of proposals coming from the Commission, but we do some good work in the area of reports, preparing reports, and I think that's an area that we could possibly expand uh, and develop, and it would be much more beneficial to all concerned. Yes, Zinkin's report on agriculture. It was a very fine job, and there have been a few others in safety legislation. Uh, there have been some, f some good work done there also. Uh, indeed, uh, any time we have set about preparing reports, such as uh, when the Greek the Greeks were coming into the community, the uh, background study was done, it was done on about, the Spain, about Spain and Turkey and so on. All this was very, very valuable and was bent, presented always in a very objective way. And I think that's what's important, so that the Commission then, when it looks at that type of report, could uh, make its own judgment against the background of knowledge that's then available to it from this type of organisation. Once we look for decisions or uh, agreement, we invariably end up compromising, either the employers or the unions or the disparate group. Everything is watered down. It's watered down. You, seek, you, go, you move towards the lowest common denominator rather than up the line. You know. John Carroll, the General President of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. Here at home, when we read of the work afoot in Brussels, agriculture and fisheries seem to dominate the headlines to the virtual exclusion of all else. I put this point to Ricard DC, a member of the Secretariat of the ESC. You know, it's true that the agriculture being the main policy, uh, the one which uh, where the most money goes through the uh, community coffers, uh, is and the major single policy which exists within the EC at the moment, uh, that that naturally takes the larger par largest part of the headlines um, and would account for the bulk of the information which gets back from Brussels uh, to home. But that's not to say uh, that that is the total part of our work, uh, far from it. In fact, I would say it's only 10% of it, because in all the other fields uh, there is a large amount of discussion going on in regional policy, social policy, industry, energy and environment. Uh, these are areas where common policies don't yet exist, uh, but where discussions are continually going on 
uh, to look at aspects where the 10 member states uh, can work together. But these discussions have been going on for a very long time, have they not? Uh, they do, and with mixed success. Uh, in some instances, uh, the European Commission, uh, that's to say the body which is responsible for uh, putting out the ideas, proposals in the first place, uh, they put forward uh, documents uh, which go through the whole machine consultative process with experts from the member states, representatives of the European Parliament, um, us in the Economic and Social Committee, where we have representatives of industry, agriculture and the trade unions. Uh, you often find that the it takes uh, a gestation period of, of a number of years, in some instances as many as four or five years, uh, before agreement is reached. Uh, because what happens is, uh, when a proposal comes out initially, uh, you will find that one country and say certain interests within that country will have objections uh, to it and that the proposal would tend to be blocked and stymied and postponed. Uh, but if taken over a long period of time, uh, you find this uh, gradual acceptance comes about through the talk process uh, and this finally people come to uh, a compromise agreement and at the end of, of the five or six year period uh, you will suddenly find that uh, there are no further objections and the proposal is adopted. Um, this is fairly significant, say, in the environmental field now. There are certain aspects which have a prime European importance. Um, most of the environmental pollution effects, if one thinks of the Betel Gurs accident in Bantry Bay, um, they are transnational in their effects. Um, similarly, there's a significant aspect of conditions of competition because, quite clearly, if one country applies stringent uh, rules for the protection of environment and another country doesn't, uh, the dirty industry will tend to concentrate on the uh, country which doesn't have the rules and clearly um, this is neither fair from an industrial viewpoint and neither fair for the um, for the citizen uh, within the country affected uh, so that there is a prima facie need uh, for uh, a common policy and we have our common measures and we do seem to move in, the, in that direction a number of those are on the statute book at the moment uh, mainly in the area of harmonised rules, that's to say they don't inv involve a large amount of uh, financial expenditure, uh, but nevertheless uh, have a fair concrete significance. But is the lack of progress in so many fields uh, a lack of push in effect? Because all these problems must have applied initially to the agri agriculture policy, even more so. Um, I don't think so. Uh, when you look at this not say in the Irish context of a population of three and a half million and a fairly cohesive uh, political interest and in where it's fairly easy to take a decision in Dublin within uh, a short space of time. Uh, when you enlarge that onto a scale where you have uh, a population of 270 million, uh, 10 countries uh, with in some instances uh, very different industrial structures, uh, climatic environments, um, farm interests, uh, it's a much more long-haul process uh, to get agreement and it's mainly uh, I would say it's more a question of time it's a much slower uh, institution it's a much slower body to get moving uh, but the the process of movement is, is nevertheless fairly inevitable uh, one uh, example of that which is fairly striking is in the field of uh, economic and monetary union um, where the first proposals were put out in 1969, 1970, there were further reports, uh, 1972 and 1974. But by the time 1975 had come, it had been thrashed around so much 
thus uh, it was generally being regarded as a dead duck, as not politically being practical. And suddenly, two years after that, uh, in 77, by speech of the President of the European Commission in uh, Italy, uh, the initiative was put out once again. And at that stage, uh, there seemed to be no further objection. And the European monetary system came into being uh, in 1979. Uh, now, that itself is uh, a significant development, but one which took 10 years uh, to get from the drawing boards uh, onto the statute book. Well, of course, uh, the farming and fisheries are perhaps the two subjects which get uh, the greatest amount of exposure in the in, in the in the media in the in the papers television radio and so on not only in Ireland but in other countries as well but um, at the same time we must remember that perhaps imperceptibly the legislation in many in the in the countries of the community uh, is being gradually changed because of the the the, uh, the necessity to do so either arising out of the regulations which will have a direct and immediate application in the member states or in the uh, in regard to the directives which may allow for a certain period in which uh, the the full impact of the directive will be introduced into the member state now that can range right across from uh, say topics like uh, ladies uh, cosmetics uh, right to regional policy or from uh, mopeds to uh, the social fund so imperceptibly uh, that is being embedded in the legislation of the member states the regulations dealing with all these matters such as the environment such as pollution of water such as the the regional policy and the instrument of the regional fund and so on so not just farming as you say quite rightly but uh, and our fisheries but indeed across the whole range of of european policies right from uh, from economic financial social transport uh, energy, and so on. The various groups which make up the ESC are known as the social partners, though some might see them as social antagonists. Employers working in harness with trade unionists or environmentalists smack of the lion lying down with the lamb. And yet, in a way, it seems to work. Morris Zinken is a British representative of Group 1, the employers. How did he come to be chosen? I was suggested by the Confederation of British Industry and I think their reason for choosing me was that I had an economic background and I had been chairman of their working party on the common agricultural policy. Uh, which is surprising in a way in that you weren't in agriculture, were you? No, but in the CBI we have the National Farmers Union and of course we have other people who are very hostile to the common agricultural policy and the job of the chairman was really to try and produce some agreed policy which we did in fact succeed in doing. And since coming to Brussels you've been saddled with the same job. You were rapporteur for a major paper on CAP. That's right. And I think roughly for the same reason. I didn't have violent views in any particular direction. Is this a good qualification, do you reckon, in committee here? It's very useful in a rapporteur. It would be very undesirable if all the members of the 
committee were relatively detached because it is, after all, important that the committee should represent the views of various interests, and most interests are not very detached. What you turned out struck me as a statement of the status quo, as it were, rather an opinion rather than a recommendation. That's right. On the whole, we thought that if we were going to go on to recommendations, we would do that at a second stage. The function of what I was doing was to try and provide a background and a statement of the different views within the committee. Reconciling those views is a second operation. I liked one of your asides in your report where you said that the Irish were the only race which maintained their enthusiasm for having babies. It's very striking in the figures, and I expect you can explain the reasons. <laughs> Group 2 represents trade union interests. The British trade unions have not taken kindly to the ESC, and to be blunt, have virtually boycotted its meetings. John Carroll explained why Irish trade unionists felt differently. Well, we did take kindly to it because we saw in it uh, an opportunity to bring the various social and economic groups together without having the overtone or undertone of political ramifications. And to that end, uh, to us, uh, it's an opportunity to meet with people who are involved in decision-making or decision-influencing in the member states and, of course, ultimately in Brussels itself, at the Commission, the level of the Commission, the Council of Ministers. So it's, it's a sort of a, a lobbying forum and it's a contact forum. But uh, I'm not too sure myself that it goes very much beyond that. Uh, there have been efforts made in the last couple of years to try and increase or improve its influence on the decision-making process within the, com uh, the community. Uh, it is an advisory body, as you know, under the Treaty of Rome. It has to be consulted on particular issues. Uh, but there, has, there isn't that much evidence that over the years there has been much uh, cognizance taken of its views. There are, of course, some exceptions to that, and uh, I, as I said, efforts are being made to try and improve its relevance. But uh, I think a lot of people look on it just as tipping the cap to democracy. It's a talking shop, and uh, it is a fact also that its membership is composed of uh, not alone disparate groups, but also of many people who have moved or are moving towards the end of their own active career in their chosen walks of life, and uh, it's like a seat in the Lord's uh, or, uh, to some... Or the uh, Senate at home. Or the Senate at home, yes, although some senators mightn't take too kindly to that. <laughs> and how far is there interplay between you in Group 2 representing Labour and the people in Group 1 representing employers? Little or none. Uh, Should there be? Well, if it's a social, it's a, if it's an avenue through which the social and economic uh, factor factions in any society uh, get together and uh, discuss at a level other than a, a narrow political level matters of common interest, one would anticipate there would be greater cohesion in the type of concepts they have. It doesn't work that way. In fact, more and more. Uh, group 1 and Group 2 are drawing further and further apart if that's possible and that any ma matter of major consequence such as, for instance, farm prices there's a very obvious line-up uh, you see this in other matters too, uh, nuclear energy there's a very positive line-up, you see it in matters of health protection and legislation or proposed regulations governing health in, the in, in industry, the use of asbestos and so on uh, number one group 
identify absolutely. Number two group identifies absolutely, and there's very little uh, accommodation for the other's point of view. On the other hand, uh, this is rather contradictory what I'm going to say now. On the other hand, you do get a situation where accommodation is reached through a type of compromise uh, and people work behind the scenes, the secretariat of the various groups, trying to uh, reconcile points of view so that uh, an agreed opinion can be presented on some issue. And in many cases that happens too, but in, every time it happens it means there's a watering down of the actual opinion or the, 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 the thrust of the opinion. I've argued against that here. Uh, I've made myself very unpopular with a lot of people by saying that uh, we're more uh, of a, a big club than we are of a, a real uh, argumentative, uh, positive policy framing organisation. You would be all for confrontation rather than Well, not, co not confrontation, but I'm all for the truth. Uh, I'm well, all at for the plenary session you would have Group 1 voting as a bloc, Group yes, 2 voting yes, it happens the opposite way. way. Yes, it happens that way. And Group 3 is a disparate group. It composes... Uh, uh, various various interests. interests, including academics and small farmers. Uh, Presumably their vote would be split. Yes, uh, but again on major issues they tend to go along with Group 1. This has been the experience. Jack Corliss, past president of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, is more sanguine in regard to the committee's work. I would say that we are very fortunate in the Irish delegation. Uh, we have people who have a common interest, to serve the best interests of Ireland, and I could mention quite some of my colleagues from the trade union side. Uh, we have John Carroll, who is at present the general president of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. We have Paddy Murphy, who is associated with the Federation Workers Union of Ireland, and myself, and we have worked together in the closest possible harmony. And may I say that we have received total support from those other group members of the Irish delegation who are not associated particularly with the trade union interests, but I could speak of Patrick Lochery, uh, Gordon Pearson, Anthony Leddy, John Kenna of the CII, and of course our own president of the Economic and Social Committee at the moment, Tomas Rosengrave, who in fact has been a tower of strength to all of those interests which best serve the overall interests of Ireland. The members of Group 3, representing as they do so many viewpoints, are hard to quantify. One of the principal interest groups is that of the consumers, but they don't seem to have much say. Ernie Roberts. You're absolutely right. They have a very small service, which has a very small staff. I think they have about nine or ten, compared with about 60 or 70 who work on environment, for instance. So it's really very, very small. Um, in the Economic and Social Committee, I think we could count ourselves as about 11 uh, out of a whole of 156. The thing to be said against that is that the consumers have, in a way, and here in this Economic and Social Committee particularly, in a way they're fashionable. Um, perhaps that's putting it a bit strongly. But you can't, you daren't, if you're... a uh, a trade unionist or an industrialist, you don't say anything against consumers. 
Um, and you have to uh, pepper your speeches with saying this is in the consumer interest, we must take account of consumers, everybody knows about what consumers want. Now, an enormous amount of that is lip service, of course, but I think the fact that they feel they have to give lip service to it is an advance in our interests. So you feel you are not without influence here? Oh, no, we're certainly not without influence. Um, when it comes, as you know, I'm the president of the Section for the Environment and Consumer Affairs. Uh, when it comes to things like additives in food, um, pure water, um, the small technical things affecting the quality of what we eat, um, in fact, the consumers win. And there's no doubt about that. When you come to something very important like the uh, common agricultural policy, where there are tremendous vested interests of consumers, of, uh, of farmers, I'm sorry, of farmers, um, then we don't. But we have a better forum in this committee than I think in the world outside. Because, on the whole, these people, professional people and farmers and industrialists, they're not basically political. They're much more willing to understand other people's points of view. So we get a little pressure of our own is made effective, even in things like the common agricultural policy. I don't think that this committee has a terrific amount of influence when you compare us with the Parliament or obviously the Council of Ministers, but we do draw up opinions. the Parliament itself is not very powerful, is it? No, but it, I think its opinions are listened to a little bit more than ours, and it has more powers over the European budget, for instance. But it, it's the constant dripping. Our opinions, our own initiative reports, do go through the machinery, do go back to the Commission, and we can influence the direction and sometimes make changes before something comes into uh, force. Mary Clark of the UK National Consumers Council. How's the work of the ESC regarded by those in the higher echelons of Europe? I asked Commissioner Michael O'Kennedy. It's a question really of asserting your role through developing your role. And from discussions I've had with members of the Economic and Social Committee, I think they're becoming very conscious of that. Uh, an example one might give, just a practical example, uh, is that uh, we are concerned in the Commission at the moment with industrial innovation. To many people that simply means new technologies, and it means that. But it means much more. It means, in fact, developing the appropriate industrial projects which are suitable to the regions in which they are located. And here I'm talking particularly of small industries. Uh, and if you look to the influence which the various vocational groups and the trade union groups and the employers as well have in the development of small industries, you can see in fact that there is a great scope here for uh, making the Commission aware of how best to uh, direct our new policies uh, to get right to the people. We always keep talking about Europe of the people. This is an opportunity to demonstrate what we mean by it. And you feel the ESC could do this, uh, directing your minds towards this? I do, certainly. Problem. I think even if we were to convince ourselves that our minds were already sufficiently concentrated on this issue, uh, the 
Economic and Social Committee, in fact, by virtue of its composition, is in a very strategic position to uh, ensure that uh, not only do we concentrate on it in terms of our analysis, but also in terms of our decision. And I think you will see evidence of this coming out fairly soon in, in the adaptation of the uh, regional fund and how it can be applied in the member states. Commissioner Michael O'Kennedy. How do our representatives in the Economic and Social Committee see themselves? Are they Irishman first and European second? The President, Thomas Rosengrave. If you operate at the level of the European community, you should, and I think you're expected, to take the European perspective. But I personally, and I think I would say this for most of uh, the people who are members of the committee here, obviously recognise uh, a national or a member state dimension. And I personally don't make any apology for that. I think uh, we're talking about a unity in Europe. We're not talking about a uniformity. So therefore, it's the sum total of the many uh, ideas and uh, expressing the different conditions and positions in the member states that go to make up the sum total of what uh, eventually emanates from the Commission and is finally decided uh, by the Council. So I think, um, yes, you, we should be, and I think the Irish particularly, are good Europeans. But being good Europeans does not, I think, in any way uh, infringe your right and, I think, your duty to express your own particular national member state uh, position on any proposal that may be made. You would be inclined to subjugate the national interest for the common good? I think this. I, I think this is very, very true uh, in in regard to the uh, overall concept of European unity today. Uh, and without wishing to enter into the uh, uh, purely political aspects of uh, of Europe, I think that many of the problems that we're faced on in Europe today uh, are due to the fact that far too too uh, restrictive national positions are being taken and that they are not uh, looking at the problem from the European point of view because obviously certain things will have to be uh, given and have to be uh, uh, conceded by member, by member states and I think there is far too rigid a position being taken by one country today, it was another country yesterday and it may be another country tomorrow. But this is a creed occur that has been heard since the EEC was established. It is, and I think it will continue. And if you look at it purely from that point of view, you might ask yourselves at times, as I do, uh, how, in fact, does the community continue to exist uh, in view of the, the conflicting national interests and the very strong national positions which are taken from time to time? Uh, you know, we're going back a period now of 23 years, and, uh, well, the community is still in existence. And we've had no European wars. Well, that is the most... I, I, I think perhaps if you, we, we were to uh, identify any one uh, particular benefit, if I can put it that way, that has accrued uh, from the... Um, from the European community, the construction of the European community, it is that particular point that now we are for the first time, I think, in this century, we have gone without having a European war every 25 years. And you have only to come here and speak to the representatives from Germany and from Italy and from France and from Britain who have, some of them fought 
in opposite sides in the last war to realise from them how much they now realise the importance of the European community.